You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. The economy this year has managed to defy widespread predictions for a recession. Growth has been solid, and inflation has declined without the unemployment rate rising above 4%. Despite the encouraging data, surveys show households and businesses have broadly negative perceptions of the economy. On today's episode, we talk with Claudia Somm former Fed researcher and founder of SOM Consulting, about the resilient 2023 economy, why sentiment is telling such a different story from the hard data, and what to look out for in 2024. Before we go into the episode, I should note that we recorded this interview December 4th, before the latest FOMC decision, the November Employment Report, and November CPI. I think the substance of the conversation still holds, but some of the data mentioned and Fed commentary are not entirely up to date. All right, on to the episode. Coming up soon, our interview with Claudia Somm, former Fed researcher and founder of Somm Consulting. But first, a quick market update. The Fed left interest rates unchanged this week, as expected. But Chair Powell's press conference and the projections for monetary policy next year suggested by the latest dot plot signal an inflection point for Fed policy. Intermediate Treasury yields fell more than 20 basis points after the decision, and 10-year yields fell below 4% for the first time since the end of July. We'll still need to wait a little to see where markets have set their new anchor for Fed expectations and bond yields, but right now, there's a firm expectation priced into markets that the Fed's first rate cut will come in the first quarter of 2024. We think it's more likely to happen in June, though we'll have to keep an eye on post-meeting Fed communication to see how much pushback there is against the market's aggressive rate cut expectations. November payroll growth surprised slightly to the upside, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.7%, tempering analyst predictions for a fourth-quarter economic downturn. With the UAW and Screen Actors Guild strikes having now ended, December data should give a much better picture of the underlying strength. Earlier this week, the November core CPI rose 0.3%, as expected. The bond market reaction was relatively mild, and the report did little to change markets' optimistic expectations for the inflation trajectory. The retail sales report surprised to the upside as well, suggesting the economy is still on solid footing in the fourth quarter. The coupon auctions this week were scheduled earlier than usual to avoid overlap with Wednesday's FOMC meeting. The auction results were generally weak, but bidders usually require concessions given the rate risk of being so close to big data reports and a Fed decision. Coupon auctions resume next week with the five-year tips and 20-year treasury bond. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Claudia Somm. Our guest today is Claudia Somm, former Fed economist, founder of Somm Consulting, and writes on Substack at Stay at Home Macro. Claudia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're recording this in the first week of December, and it's about that time where people have started to look back at 2023. As of right now, it looks like the U.S. economy has managed to avoid the recession that a year, year and a half ago, so many people assumed was going to happen. Claudia, have you been surprised by how resilient the economy has been this year? Absolutely not. Last year was really rough. 2022, as inflation went up, we need a recession was coming from some very senior policy advisors. It was bleak. 
Now, I will say that from the very beginning, even going all the way back to 2020, CARES Act, the response, I was convinced we were getting to the other side of this, particularly because with the CARES Act through the rescue plan, there was a massive amount of support that went out to families, small businesses, communities. That was a big piece of getting us to the other side. Like getting to the other side has taken longer than I expected. It's been more painful than I had expected. And yet, 2023, we turned the corner and it is so clear that I was right. I mean, I have peers who also were like, COVID was so disruptive. Ukraine was so disruptive. American consumers came back a lot faster than American workers. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons for that. But that was disruptive too. The supply chains were broken. It was a global pandemic. Now, all these things were very special tragic features of the world. And they were all ones that we could look at and say, we're going to get to the other side of this, right? But it was very disruptive. And shutting down the U.S. economy, much of the global economy in March of 2020, well, it turns out that's really disruptive. And throwing it back into gear takes a long time. This was my baseline. This is where I thought we were headed since the beginning of the pandemic. It wasn't clear last year that is going to be right about this. And yet this year, as inflation has come down, unemployment has stayed low, we clearly did not need a recession, nor do we have a recession. Even after you take inflation into account, there's more spending, there's more wealth. People cleaned up a lot of their credit, their debt. Wages are growing relative to income. Like there, there are a lot of things that have come together this year that it's like, wow, we're going to make it. We are going to get out of this in a way that, frankly, we would have described it as impossible. Like, we're going to nail this landing next year in a good way, like in a soft, happy way. And that's so encouraging. It didn't have to be this way. I think there are a lot of good points you made uh, that I want to follow up on. But the first thing to, to kind of go back to what you said about these disruptions being temporary, I think... Um, there was a sense that COVID and supply chains were in this weird adjustment phase and eventually they would come back into better balance. But of course, the worry was that as long as prices were increasing faster than incomes and people, you know, maybe were drawing down those savings they had earlier in the pandemic, we had all these headwinds that maybe the economy wouldn't survive before those adjustments kind of came to fruition. So how do you think the economy was able to be this resilient? Where did all of that extra spending and investment to survive those headwinds come from? And why do you think people at the Fed and a lot of economists didn't see this? There are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. So first of all, when the pandemic began and we went into a recession that was the most severe recession since the Great Depression, right? Unemployment absolutely went through the roof. The CARES Act, and I advised House Democrats on this like right before the CARES Act got signed into law, it, it was big. I mean, $2 trillion. As Obama came into office with the Great Recession, that package, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, was about a trillion dollars. And that even had some infrastructure stuff. It wasn't even all just like helping families, like immediate need. So we saw this time, CARES was twice as big. It was so good. Like, I didn't sleep the night until it passed the Senate because I was worried that some lawmakers were going to wake up to how good the jobless benefits were. So, like, we did all this. And in fact, just as one example with the stimulus checks, which I've worked a lot on, between there were three rounds of the stimulus checks. So they went out in March. They went, well, 
they were enacted in March. They went out not too much after that. So you had in the spring of 2020, you had at the end of 2020, and you had at the beginning of 2021, so in the spring. But you had three rounds. If you add all that up for a family of four, two adults, two kids under 18, they got $11,400 within one year. And that's regardless of whether they lost their job or not. I mean, if you lost your job, a lot of workers got paid more than they did before. So but just with those stimulus checks, that is almost 20% of median family income. That is 25% of Black family income. That was huge. I mean, yeah, like, that was it. We got three rounds. We're not getting them still. That allowed people, and I do research on this from prior relief and recessions, people use that to spend. That and the pent-up demand of, when we shut the economy down, a lot of people couldn't go out and spend. So, But those checks put a lot of money in people's pockets and spending, you know, they bought stuff. Uh, sadly, they bought literally stuff, which the supply chains were all messed up. But then the other thing we saw is people paid down debt. People saved it. Credit delinquencies fell in the recession. Like that never happens. Bankruptcies fell. People paid off debt wealth. Net wealth of the median family is higher, record higher in terms of like a percent change from before COVID, like up till last year. And, and then so you had all this relief. So that kept people whole through this really bad time. And then where this went, and this is related to the spending and other things with COVID. I want to say this all the fiscal policy, the labor market really kicked into gear. And for most Americans, they live paycheck to paycheck. Some of those paychecks are big. Like we just, you know, kind of put it all out on the line to live where we live or do our spending. So that means if your paycheck is bigger, or particularly if you have a paycheck that you wouldn't have otherwise, well, that's consumers. And so as long as we, like with the recession scenario, it's like if you lose the labor market, you lose consumers. If you lose consumers, we're done because it's 70% of GDP. But the opposite was true. We had a great labor market. We've had great spending and we have no recession. And we are not pointed at one unless something unforeseen and really bad happens. But where we are right now, I mean, we are on the glide path and we won't get there until next year. This inflation is still too high, but it is coming down. It's on an absolute path to be back to where it, quote unquote, should be sometime next year, towards the end of next year. To that point, I think if three years ago you told me that right now inflation would be near 3%, the unemployment rate below 4% for more than a year and a half, and growth above 2% for most of this year, I'd say this was the Goldilocks economy, but why are people reporting such dissatisfaction then with the economy when the indicators economists like to look at appear to be so good? This time was different in many ways, and they're not good ways. In living memory, we have not had a global pandemic. We have not had a war in Europe, which happened in Ukraine in a very long time, in generations. And with COVID, it came, it was horrible. We didn't even understand what it was, right? And so you shut down the economy, it's so disruptive, and the kids are, I mean, like everything turned upside down. And then we think, okay, we're getting this under control. There's the relief, and in 2020, and then Delta came, and Omicron came. And then like, it kept coming, and like there were the vaccines, and then that got politicized, and then you have Putin. And we had such a 
run of bad luck. I mean, a lot of this is like tragic, right? Very disruptive in our lives and our livelihoods. It was scary. People died. Other people got long COVID. When you ask people, how do you feel about your finances, about the world, or about the economy, you're wrapped up into what all have we experienced? I've talked with a lot of people trying to understand this disconnect between the sentiment. And if I go out in the surveys that ask people, do you have a job? What are your wages? How much are you spending? What's your wealth, your credit? Like if you do those and you're asking people, right, we add it all up, but you're asking people about key components of their finances. And if you look at those, it's like, wow, most Americans are doing better than before the pandemic. But if you ask them, are you better off financially before the pandemic? They say, no, many of them. So then it's like, okay, you know, talking to different people, trying to understand this. First of all, I think it's very much related to COVID. Many people will point to politics and polarization. I think there's also an argument that we're at a place where social media is a technology that amplifies the bad news that's always been in the news. Like if it bleeds, it leads, right? But we're getting a lot more of this amplification. And then talking with someone recently, I was like, this really makes sense to me, is that while you're fine, like on paper, you're better off, you don't feel it. Like the inflation is high. Yes, you walk out of the store with more stuff or the same amount of stuff as before, but you're angry. The prices are higher. And then on top of that, because of all the horrible things that have happened, you don't potentially feel as secure, right? Because again, it's on paper, but paper can burn up really fast. And that's kind of been the story of the last three years. I don't tell people how to feel. And I, as someone who do policy advising and think about the macroeconomy, I need to know, well, should I use the sentiment? Because in the past, it's been very helpful looking ahead to a recession. Or should I go with people, what they're doing and not what they're saying? And I'm at the point now where I'm really trying to figure out this disconnect. But if you ask me, what are you using to think about the economy going forward? It's what people do. Not what they say. And it really pains me to be in that camp of just setting the sentiment surveys aside because I've used them and find them very helpful in the past. But I don't know. They're telling us something, but they're not telling me something as a macroeconomist. I agree. I mean, when, when um, you know, a new beige book comes out or even the featured comments in, in the ISMs, it used to be that you could really put them under a magnifying glass and maybe you could get this sneak peek of, of an inflection point because consumers are pushing back on higher prices or, you know, they're starting to worry and this and that. And it's been going on for so long in such a way that disconnects from the hard data um, that, yeah, I, I really take them all with a grain of salt. But I want to return a bit to a point that you made earlier, I think a couple times, which is this idea uh, that a lot of people had, which was a recession was necessary to bring inflation back to uh, 2%. Um, essentially, some big labor market weakening um, was needed for the economy to get back into better balance. How would you explain this disagreement between your point of view and this other group of people when it comes to that connection between the labor market and inflation? Macroeconomists have a limited set of tools to give guidance about, I mean, it's hard for us to even figure out what's happening right now. We have well over a $20 trillion economy and there's a lot of moving pieces. 
So it's hard to know where we at. Sometimes it's even hard to know where were we six months ago. A lot of the information we have gets revised and changes and you never have all the information you want. Okay. So if you don't even totally understand the past, doing a good, Hey, this is where we're going in the future is really hard. And during COVID, there were some very special features of the recession and the disruptions that came out of it that challenged the tools that macroeconomists use. The big disagreement was, okay, we have this inflation. Inflation picked up in 2021 and it kept going in 2022, uh, at least through the kind of middle of the year. Okay, so why did inflation go up? My view is that it was related to COVID and Ukraine and the disruptions it's caused. So we think of those as supply, right? There, there was demand, and I'll come back to that, but we also had this very strange circumstance where supply just couldn't keep up. It was less than normally we would expect the economy to be able to produce, whether it was goods coming through the supply chains or its services, like workers at the restaurant. So to me, it was so clear that you have a lot of supply-driven inflation, a lot of COVID. And so then the argument would be, well, if that's what's causing inflation, then as we get past the pandemic, as you know, global energy markets normalize after uh, the shock of the invasion in Ukraine, well, then that inflation should come down, right? So that's been my point of view. It's borne out. Right? Like we're seeing this, we're not to the finish line, but it's absolutely clear, especially where we've seen the, not just disinflate, like not just inflation has, has slowed down, but actually some prices have fallen. Like if you look at used cars or you look at some of the goods that, you know, semiconductors and all these kind of things. The other side of this, if you think that the rescue plan was too big or you think the Fed waited too long to raise interest rates, then you could say, you could look at the inflation and be like, it's demand. There's too many dollars chasing not enough stuff. And if it's demand inflation, macroeconomists have this little tool called the Phillips curve. And in its simplest form, which is exactly what was marched out to talk about we need a recession, it has this trade-off between inflation and unemployment. Now, unemployment is more of a, it captures the fact that the labor market is good or is bad, right? And as I said before, if the labor market is good, then spending is good, you have a lot of demand, right? So the we need a recession is, okay, inflation is high. To get inflation down, if we use this kind of rule of thumb, then we need unemployment to go up because that's the only way to get demand down. But that all has to do with like, well, we need this because the inflation is primarily demand. If it's primarily supply, well, you can destroy enough demand to get inflation down, but you don't really quote unquote, need to. You need to like let some of this stuff work out. Now, in the reality, I would say like there was a mixture of the two. I tend to be on the like two thirds of it was supply and a third of it was demand. Some people who have taken a different position on demand, I mean, they really go all in on this is demand. The rescue plan was evil. But it wasn't clear because nobody can look under the hood of inflation and be like, hey, are you demand or are you supply? Right? Like it had to as it has worked itself out, it's so clear that much of it was supply and it is so clear that we did not need a recession. I think where Fed officials and um, a lot of economists might push back on that analysis is um, it goes to the New York Fed president, um, John Williams's inflation onion. So the disruptions that you talked about 
um, from the war in Ukraine, from supply chains, um, those come into better balance and we see those prices fall, but that doesn't happen forever. And so you're left with what they call the super core, the center of their inflation onion, which is core services, excluding shelter. And the way that the Fed understands this is that there is a kind of uh, reinforcing relationship between service prices and wages. And so once that inertia picks up pace, it's really hard to slow it down because workers have this bargaining power in a strong labor market. And to kind of make the bargaining power in better alignment, you have to have a recession. Um, do, do you feel like this idea of the super core is incorrect or that it can come down without labor market weakening? The pushback I would give is that we had disruptions in the labor market that were also related to COVID. Like when you talk about supply disruptions, it almost always gets framed in terms of global supply chains. Fine. That was a piece of it. If you look over the past several decades, durable goods prices, so the kind of thing we would import from abroad, have fallen. Like not disinflation, but actually a deflation. So the goods deflation, those declines in prices, like they should be with us. I mean, they're bigger now than one would expect for a long time. But, you know, don't act like those things are going back up because we had decades of them falling. And on the service side, well, okay. So we had a labor market where the consumers came back quickly. We didn't have all the workers. Some of it, older workers retired in part due to COVID. And then you just, mothers were at home because kids in the school was all very um, touch and go. So there just weren't enough workers. And so that meant to get workers and to get them to come off the sidelines, businesses had to pay more. And that was not something that those corporations had expected. I mean, these people haven't got raises in forever, right? So you had this very strange, like, we don't have enough workers. So we have to pay these higher wages. And yes, for a lot of businesses, especially small businesses, they have to, they pass that on, right? So that goes into the services. And then it's not so much we needed to get fewer customers. We needed more workers. And that's what we've seen this year. This was a huge, important development and also very a linchpin to kind of pushing back on what was driving super court was demand. Okay, so what we saw this year is the workers come back. Some of it was very COVID-related. The federal government was finally processing the work visas that had been backlogged because during COVID they more or less shut down the program. So you had that, you had women coming back. We had women's employment for prime age women, like the percent that were working hit an all-time high uh, this year. So there's just two examples of, well, some of, the, like, some of the workers we were missing, it did have a connection to COVID. And now those workers have come back. And, you know, the increases in the jobs, the hiring, it's moderated some. It still looks really good. But now you had this surge of workers coming in. The jobs have to catch up. Unemployment has drifted up a little bit. And wage growth has slowed. It's still really good. It still looks good. Like we went, you know, right before the pandemic, things were good. And so it's like, you don't have these red hot, like to get people to come back, the wage increases, things are working themselves out. It is true. That's, that can be uh, what they refer to as a stickier part of inflation uh, that takes time to, it can get stuck. Right. Like if the dynamic is there, 
But, you know, things like the bargaining power of workers, the institutions did not change large. That was a very special circumstance of COVID that gave workers the upper hand. There's still, I think, workers still have more bargaining power than we went into with the pandemic, but it's not like last year. And frankly, the big unions that are getting great raises and packages, that's the tail end of this. We don't have enough unionization to have that keep going. This is part of the inflation is coming down. The Fed is going to be very cautious about cutting and whatever, but they're happy. They don't have to destroy the economy and they've never wanted to. They were worried that if they were too patient, things would get embedded with that inflation. And that happened in the past, so it's not a stupid thing to think, but it's taken the wind out of the sails of super cores, like such a you know, harbinger of doom or something. It's going to be the last one to work itself out, but it is working itself out. So you you helped develop something at the Fed called the SOM rule that showed historically, if there was a big enough upward increase in the unemployment rate over a certain period of time, it was a precursor to a recession. Before I actually get into my question, um, is that a correct way to describe it? Is there anything else you want to add with uh, how, how to think about the SOM rule for our listeners? Well, so it's an indicator that we are in a recession. It'll tell us that before, like, the National Bureau of Economic Research says, hey, we're in a recession. But the SOM rule, and I'm sure we'll talk about what that is, when it triggers, it has historically triggered within the first couple months of a recession. So it doesn't forecast it, but it's like we're in the past, and it's been perfectly accurate since the 1970s. You go back after World War II, it is largely um, nails it in that it will only trigger inside of a recession, doesn't trigger outside of a recession, and it never misses a recession. I mean, it's not a law of nature, right? It's just, it's been a pattern. It, it doesn't have to, you know, work this time. But yes, that's that's the idea of it. It's about trying to figure out, are we in a recession? And I developed this SOM rule. I did not name it the SOM rule. Uh, I developed this SOM rule as a way to say, hey, it's time to send out stimulus checks. Hey, it's time to send out those extra jobless benefits and to do it automatically because it's the SOM rule is based on the unemployment rate data. It's not based on Congress getting together and saying, hey, we have a recession. So that's why it exists is to help people in a recession. I didn't anticipate becoming a world expert on recessions. I'm an expert on how to help people in recessions, but whatever, I'm here to do what I do. I mean, you know, people ask, I'll, I'll explain it to them. Sure, sure. Um, well, to, to that point then, um, automatic stabilizers. So the SOM rule hasn't been triggered just yet, but you know, in, in the next few months, it, it is pretty plausible that the unemployment rate will have risen from its low, from three and a half percent in the way that the SOM rule describes, um, enough to send out those stabilizers do you think that would be appropriate in the next few months, given that um, we seem to be so close to this delicate path to a soft landing? Would sending out stabilizers potentially disrupt that and, and cause, you know, a little bit of overheating enough to get the economy off track and, and we don't have a soft landing? Or, or do you feel this time is different? I would have answered this question potentially differently last year. At this point, where we are on this glide path to a soft landing, if the summer were, were to trigger, and, and I think it very much totally likely, and frankly, it's probably close to my baseline, which in macro for you, you call the baseline as if it's at least 50% or more, like what you think is most likely. I think it is entirely possible that the summer triggers 
next year, what triggering would be, we should be clear about what this thing is. So you take the national unemployment rate, take a three month average, you take, well, what's the current value of that average? And you compare it to the lowest value of the average over the prior 12 months. If that difference is a half a percentage point or more, we are in a recession. And normally that would be like, my advice was if we're in a recession, send out the checks. This time has been different in so many ways that my baseline is the sample triggers. So we get, and to trigger it, we need to, the unemployment rate, the average would have to get up to 4%. Over the last year, 3.5% was the lowest of the three-month average. Okay, so we're at 3.9% on unemployment right now. One can easily imagine it going up to 4 Have a percentage point is not a lot. Right. This is kind of the, the beauty of the SOM rule is it takes into account the idea that once the unemployment rate gets going and it doesn't have to even go that much, it keeps going. This is the whole demand cycle. If people lose their jobs and they don't spend and the more people lose their jobs and they don't spend, you know, so the SOM rule, just like the Phillips curve, very much relies on a demand driven cycle, right? This isn't about inflation, but it's about consumer spending and jobs and all that. If this in the past, when the SOM rule has triggered, in the mildest of recessions, the unemployment rate went up two percentage points. So clearly more than a half a percentage point. And in the typical recession, it's more like four, a little bit less than four percentage points. And, and then there's some bad ones where it's way more than four. The Great Recession and the COVID pandemic are two of those. The whole advice of sending out stimulus checks or any kind of relief would be, oh, well, we're in a recession, so now we fight a recession. Now, my baseline is the thing the storm world triggers, we get up to around 4%. 4% are a little bit higher, but then we just kind of hang out there. There's no, it keeps going up and up. And in that case, it's like, well, we don't have a recession. So the stimulus checks are to fight a recession. If there ain't a recession, don't send out the checks. There's no reason to send out stimulus checks if there's not a recession. I want to wrap things up by uh, talking about 2024. We've been talking a lot about uh, the, a kind of backward looking analysis um, what do you see on the horizon for the economy next year? And is there anything, um, you know, any weak spot you think could cause things to break? Anything that you're particularly worried about? What, how are you viewing next year? So my baseline is, what I think is most likely is if we, we're going to get the soft landing. And so I define that as inflation that is close to 2%, like two and a half or less, so we get to 2% inflation and the unemployment rate stays at or below 4%. If we get those two things, that's what I expect. We have the soft landing and we should all take a deep breath, right? Like that, that's totally good. Okay, so what do I worry about? To some extent, I worry about the Fed. It's pretty clear at this point, given the news on inflation, the Fed is going to stop raising interest rates. They haven't raised them much this year. You know, because they did a lot, I mean, five percentage points within a year last year. I, you know, they put a lot into the system. But now is a discussion of are they going to cut interest rates and when and how much? And I am disappointed in the Fed because their messaging about what does it need to look like for us to cut has been either missing or very squishy. And this is underscored by the fact that at least uh, recently we saw a big divergence in what the investment banks, I mean, some of the top, you know, macro forecasting shops, when they thought the first cut would be and how many cuts there would be next year. 
I mean, they're like all over the map from like people that think it's going to happen in the first quarter to people who think it's going to happen in the fourth quarter, the first cut. And then obviously, depending on, you know, if you cut early, you're going to have more cuts. And if you cut in the fourth quarter. So that to me and what that says is that the Fed is injecting uncertainty into financial markets. And that is never a good thing to do. And it's not something the Fed ever wants to do. They are legitimately uncertain about what they are going to do. To the point that they're not messaging it in public because they don't want to tie their hands behind their back. But the problem is, is that, I mean, markets have got to put a bet on something. So somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. And like, there's some real money on the line between what those are. And because you have so much uncertainty when the Fed finally says something, things could like move all over the place really fast. And I don't think the Fed is having or will have much of an effect on the quote unquote real economy, so on spending, on labor, on inflation. And yet if they muck up financial markets enough, that could spill over. The other thing I'll say that I worry about, the story that I've told about, we've turned the corner, we're headed in a good direction. It's a story of rebalancing. COVID was very disruptive. The war in Ukraine was very disruptive. We're working out those disruptions. And you can think of that about getting back into some balance that we were before. One place where you can make the case for balance or you can make the case for going over the edge is if you look at the credit, say credit delinquencies of households. Okay. So as I said before, the relief, I mean, this was big money. Many people use it to pay down their debt or be able to like pay the credit card bill every month. That meant that the delinquency rates on credit cards actually fell. You would expect as things get back to normal, that the credit delinquency rates would move up. Okay, so they are. They're kind of, depending on what measure you look at and which particular credit thing you're looking at, they're kind of about where they were before the pandemic. Okay, so as with the unemployment rate, if the sum were to trigger, does it keep going? Or is it really a rebalancing story in that we kind of get up to where we were before the pandemic and then we just kind of bounce along there? Or is it as it gets going, it keeps going? I'm watching that carefully. Now, given all the good news that we've had this year, I feel much more confident of this rebalancing story. Because you can see it in both the inflation and the labor market. The rebalancing has a lot more support than it had last year. Last year in 2022, you had a lot more you could point to and say, we're going over the edge. I don't want to be cavalier about it. And yet... I think it's most likely that that rebalancing is going to continue and we're going to get back to something that looks much more like before COVID. And before COVID, we were in a good expansion. So at this point, I'll take it. I think your description of how uh, tough it can be and, and delicate for that rebalancing to happen speaks to how, um, historically speaking, a soft landing um, can be quite elusive um, but I appreciate you uh, taking a stab at forecasting 2024 uh, because I will say, particularly in the last few years, um, it has been remarkably difficult. But thanks again for coming on the podcast, Claudia Sum. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Claudia Sum, former Fed researcher and founder of Sum Consulting. 
As we look back at how resilient the economy has been this year, and what we might expect in 2024, I think Claudia illustrates the biggest question very well. Will economic indicators rebalance so that any weakening is just a healthy adjustment, or will they go over the edge and pick up enough momentum that the economy heads into a recession? The next couple weeks will be relatively quiet on the economic data front. We'll see December consumer confidence next Wednesday, the second revision to Q3 GDP on Thursday, and then November PCE data on Friday. A few regional Fed surveys will be released the week of Christmas, but we expect light trading volumes the next two weeks with the biggest economic data this month already released in the last 2023 Fed meeting in the rearview mirror. Some Fed officials may also pop up on the calendar to add color to their SEP projections before the year ends. Otherwise, investors are taking a quick breather before the new year starts in full force with regularly scheduled economic data in Treasury auctions the first week of January. We'll be back in two weeks with our own 2023 Year in Review episode. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.